good morning, and uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, it's the very beginning of a very long book, um, not the very beginning because we did the very beginning last week in Jeremiah chapter 1, uh, I'm going to recap some of that for you in a moment. Um, yes. As we build on that, we're going to take a look at, um, at how Jeremiah moves into a message for others, where we started with a message for himself. Anybody need a book? Thank you. All right. Get that squared away. So, new study in Jeremiah, and we're going to eventually get to the book of Lamentations. Um, but a key difference in chapter two, as I just said, is that in chapter one, God was speaking to Jeremiah. In chapter two, God is, give, is giving Jeremiah a message for the nation of Judah. And it may be a little confusing that we keep seeing uh, references to Israel here, but it's really the nation of Judah. The nation of Israel, the northern tribes, have already been conquered by the Assyrians when we get to Jeremiah's story. He was a prophet to the southern kingdom because that's all that was left in Jeremiah's day. All right, by the time he was an adult, Israel was off the scene. The Syrians had taken them out of their country and moved other people in. They had been, there was that, that mixed group that eventually becomes known as, as the Samaritans in Jesus' day. So we're looking at, even though it's talking to Israel, but it's also politically the nation of Judah. It's the same group of people because that's all the Israelites who are left in the land at this point. And we're going to talk about that. It's been a long time since God gave the Israelites the promised land. And he's speaking to the last group that's still in the promised land, and they're about to lose it too. We're looking at a civilization that's in decline, not just because they weren't politically smart. The primary reason is because they were unfaithful to the God who gave them success. And because of that, their time... It, in the land is about to end. Of course, we know the whole story if we study the Bible. We know that God brings them back after the exile. But this is the people that are on the verge of going into exile. Although at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, there's still some glimmer of hope that maybe the people will turn back to God and avoid exile. And we'll be talking about that as a main theme of Jeremiah as we go through. Now, some of you know. Um, as we cleared up last week, we're not talking about a bullfrog today. <laughs> we're not talking about that Jeremiah. We're talking about Jeremiah. He's a prophet. And do you remember what his nickname is? If we give Jeremiah a nickname, we call him the what prophet? Weeping. The weeping prophet. Because this is a very sad story. This is, you know, sometimes you see a movie and it looks bleak, but you know. You know the bad guy's going to go to jail or someone's going to... You know, the bad guy's going to go falling off the tower at the end of the movie. Um, you know you know the good guy's going to win. You're really surprised when there's ever a movie the good guy doesn't. I, I remember taking my wife to a movie. I think it was like Saving Private Ryan. It was a real sad story. And, and she was mad at me because I took her... Anytime I make her watch a show where it's not a happy ending. Well, Jeremiah is not a book with a happy ending. So don't go into it expecting a happy ending. There are There is good news throughout the book. Because there's redemption, but not everything in Jeremiah goes the way we might wish it did. So we're going to get into that today and see there's quite a bit to learn here as we go through these verses. So we're going to talk about 
Um, Israel, that was formerly faithful in the first three verses, we're going to move on to see that the Lord here has some questions for this kingdom of Judah, for the nation, remaining nation of Israel, about their faithfulness. And it begins with questions and ends with condemnation. That very much like in a trial setting, God is calling his people to task, and they have fallen short of the standard, and they are now under judgment. And it's a very, very dire message from the very beginning of chapter 2 as we get into that. As we look at that, though, we want to understand that there are times in relationships that there's blame on both sides. We can see that in a marital relationship where neither partner is perfect and both have to realize, okay, I made some mistakes, you made some mistakes. And in a parent-child relationship, we can say the same thing, that I don't know, maybe some of you managed to be perfect parents, but I didn't pull that off. And I made my share of mistakes. And sometimes the kid is at fault, but sometimes realize that we as a parent were the one at fault. However, in the relationship between God the Father and his people, if there's a mistake or a problem, it's never God's fault because he is the perfect parent. He is perfectly faithful. We might be unfaithful to him, but he will never be unfaithful to us. And that was the situation that Israel was in. So as we go through the story, we're going to see some reminders of how God is faithful to his people. So look for those, those things that remind us how God is faithful to his people and faithfully cares for us. But also, we're going to spend a lot of time noting consequences of turning away from the Lord. What are the consequences of turning away from the Lord? And although I'm not going to make the mistake of making Israel and America equivalent, America is not Israel. We are not God's chosen people. However, we are a nation that answers to God. So some of the lessons that we see in God's conversation with his people, the Israelites, apply to us as well especially in this day where the gospel has been opened up to all nations. All of us have the opportunity to worship God. We all choose whether to follow him or to reject him. And so many of the consequences and choices that were available to the nation of Judah in Jeremiah's day do apply to us. So we don't mistake ourselves for Israel, but we understand that many of the principles still apply to all the nations who either profess to follow God or decide not to follow God or at unfortunately, decide to no longer follow God. And that's the lesson that's ahead of us today. So, going back to chapter 1, and here's how I would summarize what we talked about last week. That first of all, remember God called Jeremiah, and he did not accept his excuses. Remember what his number one excuse was? He's too young. Wouldn't you love to have that excuse? I'd love to have that excuse again. I can't do that. I'm too young. Um, although, you know, sometimes the old, oh, I'm sorry, I can't move those tables. I'm kind of old now, you know. But sometimes, you know, the excuses I currently have are okay. But he was just a youth, inexperienced, felt like unqualified. God didn't care. He didn't need to be qualified. He just needed to be faithful because God knew what Jeremiah was capable of. And so we realize that we really can't. We can't ever use any excuse we have. With God, if God asks us to do something, if he leads us to do something, it's within our capabilities. See, even if we have what we think are shortcomings, if God's 
God can use anybody he wants to. Uh, we're going to talk about the story. I mean, didn't God use a donkey one time? I, th- I look at all of you as having way more potential than a donkey for God to use you. So I think we're all qualified, right? Some of you have to think about it for a minute. No, I'm just kidding. No, all of you. All of you, I would definitely pick you over a donkey to, to do something for the kingdom of God. So I think we're good, right? Even though, again, we sometimes, you know, in different stages of life, there's things we wish we could do better, and maybe there's some things we can't do anymore. But God can use all of us in different ways, in many ways. So we know that God doesn't accept excuses. When he calls us to do something, we either say yes or no, and we should say yes because our trust is open on ourselves, but our trust is in God. God's word also leaves no doubt. Remember, it was compared to an almond branch blooming, and there was a there's a play on words there in the Hebrew that 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 the word for I think it was almond was close to the word for was it completion uh, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So there was a little bit of word play there in the Hebrew that we might not be aware of unless somebody told us. But the fact is that he used that example that look. My word doesn't fail. Was his answer to Jeremiah. So don't you worry. You speak my words, and they're going to have success. It's not your job to make my words succeed. God's word leaves no doubt. God's promises are always true. All we have to do is share them. Isn't that great? But there was already a, a hint of bad news in chapter 1, because in verse 13 to 16, God's final judgment leaves no escape. And there was a, a very real... Um, a very real warning, even in the very first chapter of Jeremiah, that if we don't heed God's warning, there's going to come a time that there is no escape from God's judgment. There's a line that when you cross that line, there's no turning back. God loves to forgive sin, but a person can go so far that God no longer pulls that person back to him. That's kind of the ultimate judgment of God is when God no longer tries to win you back. When God lets you go, and let you have your own way. I remember Pastor Charles Stanley talking and preaching about this. That's the worst judgment God can put on any individual is to stop trying to win you back and say, okay, fine, have it your way. The worst thing you could ever hear God say to any person is that, okay, fine, have it your way. Because our way doesn't end well. Our way ends in death and judgment. It ends in hell, and it's not a good place to be. The last thing out of chapter 1 to remind you about is that God's enemies don't stand a chance. And remember that God compared Jeremiah to like a bronze wall. Bronze was one of the strongest metals available in the days of Jeremiah. They made weapons out of it, right? And bronze is like a combination of, of brass and iron. It's the two very good metals that become better together. And that was a, it was a, it was a, they saying, I'll make you a, a bronze tower, I'll make you a bronze shield and your enemies are just going to bounce off of you, they're not going to be able to be to win against you. And that's another encouragement to us. As we serve the Lord, we don't rest in our own strength, but in God's strength. So all of this was God giving Jeremiah his call. And now it's time for Jeremiah to turn and face his countrymen, which is not an easy thing to do, by the way. So let's get into that as... Um, we now look into, unfortunately, a nation's descent into madness. Our books title this Judges. I think speaking of God being the one who judges those who are in sin, 
I've slightly changed it to the, the to a question: obedience or judgment. That's kind of the choice that's offered here to the Israelites. You can obey me, or I can judge you. Which one do you want? Because one or the other is going to happen. A nation is going to obey God, or a nation is going to be judged by God. And that's what we see here as we go through. And I've really, really split up verse 4 through 8 because I think there's a lot there. So I'm going to get into it because you might be worried. He has five points. We're going to be here until halfway through service. But <coughs> we're going to try not to do that today. So let's jump into the first three verses of Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to me here in chapter 2. Go and announce directly to Jerusalem that this is what the Lord says. I remember the loyalty of your youth. Your love is a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it found themselves guilty. Disaster came on them. This is the Lord's declaration. Now there's a couple things going on here. As, again, God is giving Jeremiah instructions to go speak to his countrymen in the land of Judah, the southern kingdom. And that's why Jerusalem is mentioned here in verse 2. Remember, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. Samaria has fallen. So the only political center of the Israelites is Jerusalem in the nation of Judah, why they went on to be called the Jews, right? This is the one who are going to go into exile and be brought back to the land. Now, it's not just the tribe of Judah. Many from the tribe of Benjamin and Simeon, their inheritance were really close to Judah anyway. And then, of course, all the refugees who escaped Assyria, where were they going to go? A lot of them went down south to Judah. So there's people from all 12 tribes now in the nation of Judah. Um, and Jerusalem is the political center now of the surviving Israelites, as it was before. But again, remember, for a while there was an awkward split, right? There were two competing capital cities, and now we're down to just Jerusalem. Similar to what we had in Jesus' day. There's just one capital city for the Jews. And the message there that Jeremiah's come with is not good news. It starts off good, though. Every good story starts off good, doesn't it? And God is basically saying, remember when you followed me faithfully? Remember when you were loyal to me? Now, um, this is not an attempt to whitewash Israel's history. There were ups and downs, right? Even in the story of Moses. There was a whole generation that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and didn't even get to go to the promised land. But the next generation learned the lesson. The next generation was willing to believe God and go into the land of giants and, and conquer it under Joshua's leadership. Now, even Joshua's story was not all roses. Remember, there was this one city called Ai. It's spelled Ai. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right. But that city... And remember, Pastor even referenced it the other day. There, it was the sin that a man named Achan took something that was supposed to be devoted to God, and he kept it hidden in his tent. And because of that, Israel lost that next battle at Ai. And and so even that, there were there were pockets where even in the good parts of the history, Israel had failings. But in those examples, they repented, got back on track, and experienced success God had for them. So. There was a time, there, there were certainly good parts to the story, right? Yes, there were bad kings like Saul, but there were good kings like David, right? So there were high points in Israel's history when they were walking in obedience to God. And God's referring that. Remember in your youth, remember 
in the beginning of the story, you know, in some of the, the best times, right? Remembering the best times of their relationship, God and Israel. You followed me in the wilderness. That perhaps a direct reference to that second generation that did obey God and followed Joshua in obedience and did receive the promised land. What I find interesting here in verse 3 is that we have this idea that Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest, the first fruits of that first of the crop, and they of course were to sacrifice that to God, right? Bring a tenth of the first fruits to the Lord. Um, they even had the feast of first fruits, right? Where the, the feast of, of one of those was the one where they presented the, I remember it was the feast of tabernacles where they brought the first fruits. <laughs> so they, they brought that, right? They had that feast that came right after harvest, and part of that was bringing the first fruits to God. And so that bringing your first fruits, in some sense, it, it means you're bringing God your best because you know you, you owe it all to Him. But also in calling Israel, God now is calling Israel His first fruits, kind of calling them the cream of the crop, basically. He's saying, You are the cream of the crop, you are the apple of my eye, you are my favorite out of everything. That the earth was producing, you were my first fruits. And then this thing in verse three, all who ate of it found themselves guilty. Is what I'm seeing there is that God is protecting them. That because they were the cream of His crop, the apple of His eye. If anybody messed with Israel, they had to mess with God. That while they were obedient to God, they were under under the umbrella of God's protection. And that meant if you you want to mess. You know, sometimes like you want to mess with my brother or sister, you know, mess with my family, you got to mess with me kind of thing. And God is saying, this, these, this is my family, these are my children. You want to mess with them, you got to come through me. And so we saw that in the story of Israel. And I'll remind you again of the story of Balaam, who was hired against the Israelites to curse them. And God told Balaam three times, no, you're not going to curse them. In fact, you're going to bless them. And the Moabites, who wanted to defeat the Israelites before they even got to the promised land, were completely thwarted for that. And I think that might be a reference that Jeremiah is talking about in verse 3. Those who tried to eat my first fruits, those who came against my people, they were found guilty. And disaster came on them. The disaster they intended to do to my Israelites, I did to the Moabites and the Midianites instead. And so that story really rings with this. There was a time when everything was good in Israel. They were obedient to God. God was happy to them. God was protecting them and saving them from disaster. And that was that's certainly part of Israel's history, isn't it? The good times. Look at this reference here in Numbers 31 about that story. Remember, there was a time, uh, even before they got to the Promised Land, God gave them vengeance against the Midianites. The Midianites... Um, we think that Balaam was a Midianite. The Midianites basically were hired by the Moabites to try and deal with Israel. And so because you'll see here, as we just read these verses from Numbers chapter 31, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you will be gathered to your people. So this is like the last battle that Moses ever fought before he died. And remember, Moses didn't go in the promised land, but then the people did under Joshua. So we've skipped down to verse 6. Moses sent them to the war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for alarm in his hand. They warred against Midian 
as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain. And skipping ahead, they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. The point here is that God gave them victory against their enemies. And notice it was a total disaster for the Midianites. They were wiped out and totally defeated. And that's what happens when you mess with God's kids. Like, why are you picking on my Israelites as they're wandering through the wilderness? They didn't pick a fight with you. You picked a fight with them, and God gave them complete victory. That victory, a result of a, a nation that was walking with God and was obedient to God. Those were the good days. God had their back, in other words. Unfortunately, it's not the end of the story today. That would be a bright and sunny lesson on a day that isn't so sunny today. But this nation had an initial devotion to God. That's what we see in Israel's story. They started off devoted to God, and they reaped, they reaped good consequences from that relationship. They got the benefits of walking with God, his protection. That came from an initial devotion, but it was an initial devotion. They didn't stay with that devotion. Now, it's been hundreds of years, and we know there were ups and downs. But in Jeremiah's day, the people are no longer devoted to God. So they were, at times, very devoted to God. Think about the bright spots. Again, the reign of David was another bright spot. There were times, even the book of Judges, that we walk away from God, that we come back to God. So there's been these ups and downs, but now it's down. And it's been down for a while. As we get into Jeremiah chapter 2, and we see that Jeremiah, now through Jeremiah, God has some questions for the nation of Israel in their current state. So after that initial devotion, let's see what's next. Verse 4 and 5. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all families of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me, that they went so far from me, followed worthless idols, and became worthless themselves? I'm going to stop right there. They've got enough to chew on just from these two verses here. As we look at God beginning to ask questions about Israel. Did you ever confront maybe a, a child or grandchild and obviously up to something they're not supposed to be doing? And you start off with, what are you doing? You start off with a question, right? You can always start off with the accusation. Maybe you should consider that I just came up and your hand is currently in the cookie jar. So you start with, oh, what are you doing there? Why is the lid off the cookie jar? Well, he has got some questions. And his first question is, did, have I made a mistake? Have I done something wrong to you? Have I mistreated you? Is there some fault in me, God is asking, that has caused you to go astray? That phrase reminded me of Isaiah 53. For all we like sheep have gone astray. God knows that we have a tendency to go astray. So he's not surprised. But he's just checking. Is it my fault that you went astray? This is the question. It's kind of a, a question that we already know the answer, right? We understand this rhetorical question. No, there is no fault in God. God hasn't done anything wrong here. It's not his fault that they've gone off course, but they have. They've gone so far from me. You're way off course, God is saying. They're not just a little off course. This is not like, hey, you know what? You guys were fine a couple of years ago, but now you're off. This has been a steady decline as we're reaching the end 
of hundreds of years of living in the promised land, and we're right at the edge of them crossing that line of no return where God's going to send them into exile. So they've gone really far away from God at this point. And part of it, as you see here, is idolatry. Part of it is they're not worshiping God alone. They're giving God some lip service, but they are worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth and these other gods of the Canaanites, of the land around them, of their neighbors, instead of God himself. They're not being faithful in their worship. And that's a very, very big part of this. Take a look at this with me. Exodus chapter 20. Was it important? Had they been told not to get into idolatry? I think we can find several <laughs> references for that, but the one you probably think of is the Ten Commandments. Like it's in the main, it's like on the front page, isn't it? In the very Ten Commandments, if you look at these first four commandments, it's about God insisting on being in first place the number one priority in the lives of his children. And that hasn't really changed, has it? God says, I have to be number one. I have no rival. You cannot worship me and, and some other entity. And we're going to talk about how those were fake, worthless in a minute. But the fact is, God, God does not suffer any rivals. So back in... Uh, Exodus 20, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above, earth beneath, or water under the earth. And he even warns them right in verse 5, I'm a jealous God and I will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So as Israel, as the nation of Judah, has turned away from God generation after generation, now Judah kind of tended to do a good king, bad king deal. Which we, when we talked about the history, we looked at all the kings of Israel, and none of them were really faithful to God. We had terrible kings like Ahab. We had no good kings in the northern kingdom. In the southern kingdom, we do have some good kings. We have ones like Hezekiah and Josiah who have revival during their reigns. But it's been a while since we had a good king. We've had a couple bad kings in a row, and everything is falling apart. I think <laughs> Josiah was the last truly good, faithful king of Judah, as I recall. And now we're in this situation where it's been a couple generations since Judah has been faithful to God. And that's what... Even Moses at the very beginning warned them about, right? Just like that kid, I told you this morning, do not get in that cookie jar, right? The warning, the instruction was given, and you haven't followed it. And so it's not God that's at fault. It's his people that are at fault who are worshiping these idols, and God was very clear from the beginning, don't do that. Don't do that. I don't, I don't tolerate that. Now I show steadfast love to thousands who keep my commandments. That was you in your youth when you were obeying me and I was protecting you, but you've made a different choice now. You've chosen to disobey me. And they are, shall we say, on shaky ground. But what I want you to see here is that God has been faithful to them. God gave them the promised land. In fact, there's a verse in, in Joshua, I think that's Joshua 21, 45, I have listed here. That Joshua said after they had conquered the promised land, he made the statement that God had kept each and every one of his promises he had made to them. Because Joshua was standing there in the promised land and they had received everything God promised them. God was totally faithful to Israel. 
But over time, Israel became ungrateful, became disobedient, and now they're, for no good reason at all, they've turned away from God, not through a fault of his. There's this inexplicable departure. Why'd you do it? I don't know. Like, I can even understand the kid in the cookie jar. He wanted a cookie. I get it. But was it worth it? That's the thing. They're pursuing these other things. We're going to find out that they're not cookies. They're not even cookies. It wasn't even worth it. It's like when I'm on a diet and I have something that wasn't even that good. And it still broke the rules. I'm like, why did they even do that? It wasn't even worth it. And that's where Israel's gotten themselves in the story. They're off doing these other things and worshiping these false gods. And they're not getting any benefits out of that. They're being disobedient. And they're not even getting anything good for it. They didn't even get a cookie. So this inexplicable departure, God is not at fault here, but they have decided to depart from God, even though God has fulfilled every promise he ever made to them. So as we get into verse 6, I want you to notice this. They stopped asking. This is the Lord's commentary on the nation of Judah. They stopped asking, where is the Lord who brought us from the land of Egypt? who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, through a land of drought and darkness, a land no one traveled through and where no one lived. God had faithfully guided them through in the wilderness, and that itself was pretty remarkable and a pretty good reminder of God's provision, wasn't it? Didn't he feed them manna every day? When they asked for water, didn't God find them a source of water? In the middle of the wilderness. Now look, I'd be I'd be hard pressed to go camping for four days. Alright? I do not have survival skills. I'm not gonna be on Bear Grill show anytime soon. I have no ability, that is not in my toolkit, to go out in the wild and survive. For, I would not make it four days. But God led him through the wilderness for forty years. We saw God at work to give them a survival of those four children from the airplane which their parents and the pilot were killed. We see stories of God's protection even today. That's true. But you remember that at the end of, the, of their 40-year journey, doesn't the Bible tell us that their clothes didn't wear out? The shoes didn't right? wear out? Most of my clothes from 40 years ago, if they fit, they're still not fit for wear, right? They got holes and they're torn. They're not in very good shape. 40 years in the wilderness. Okay? Like, I wear out a pair of shoes in, you know, a couple, you know, in a year and a half. So how did all their stuff last for 40 years? Isn't that miraculous that God take care of them that way? You know, I got some really good <laughs> yeah. you, you might have some. You might have took real good care of them and keep the moth away and the thieves away, right? You might can keep them for a while. But, but you didn't wear them outside every day for 40 years, did you? Okay? So God took really good care of them. And at some point, though, can you see in this verse they took God for granted? They took their blessings for granted. They forgot where they came from. And they kind of just forgot about God because everything was going good. The economy's great. We got all this stuff. By the way, did you know that if you're at the poverty line in America, you are richer than 97% of the world. If you're at the poverty line in the United States of America, you are richer than 97% of the people in the world. You have more stuff than most of the world. You are in the top 3%. And that's if you're at the poverty line. 
So Israel forgot who blessed them, and I wonder if sometimes we've done that too. So the concern is they stopped looking for God. Here's the problem. When you don't have God anymore, what do you really have? See, those material blessings were not going to make them happy, and they were going to go away if they stopped obeying God. And what did they really have? Well, if they went back to the wilderness where they came from, where God led them out of, if you really want to go back there, what do you have? You have deserts. It's dry. It's hard to find water. Who's going to, who, are you going to make your own manna every morning? Um, uh, and and this, this traveling through a land of drought and darkness, doesn't that sound a little bit like Psalm 23? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because I'm big and tough? For you are with me. See, the only reason that David was not afraid in the valley was because God was with him. Well, if you're in the valley and God's not with you, you should be afraid. And Israel had departed in in going into rebellion against God, not just disobedience, not just a little stumble, but generation after generation of disobedience and false worship, they were no longer under God's protection. They had every reason to be afraid. But what I really want to point out to you is, um, what, what does the scripture say? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. <clears throat> when we lose sight of God, all that's left is folly. God is all wisdom. God is all wise. When you turn your back on God, you're embracing foolishness. God is light, and you're embracing darkness. Everything that God is, when you reject him, you lose. Everything that's good in heaven, the light and the joy, none of that's going to be in hell, which is the absence of God, which is the worst punishment for it, even if it didn't have flames of torment. It would be the worst place you could ever be. It would be in a place where there is where God is not. I know he's omnipresent, but when he withdraws his presence and his attention and his blessing and his favors, that's not a place you want to be. And when you reject God, you're basically choosing darkness. It's the only possible result. These idols were not going to bring them wisdom and joy and peace and 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 all the, the fruits of the spirit that we as believers receive from God. Patience and faithfulness, all those things that we get from God, they were not going to get those things. So they are really choosing, because they stopped seeking God, all that was really left was this darkness right here. This darkness is all that they were going to have. And what this really reminds me of, and the parallel I want to talk about here today, um, I'm going to take a look at this. Let's talk about, it is June after all. Let's talk about where pride gets you. When you're so proud that you reject God's commands and say, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what I feel like doing. I'm going to celebrate the kind of behavior that I think is good instead of, even though God said it was bad, I'm going to say it's good. What's that a sign of? And that's a sign of a nation that's descending into madness. It's a sign of a nation that's descending into darkness. And we see that in Paul's writing in chapter 1, that there's a progression, and it's not just a progression that Israel fell into, even though they knew better. 
but any nation can fall into this, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But let me just remind you what Paul had to say, starting in Romans 1, verse 21. And he's talking about the pagan world as opposed to Israel's, Israel, which knew better, but nonetheless, the principles apply. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So what happens when we forget God and don't honor the God who created all the people of the world? Well, let's move on. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. There's the darkness. Claiming to be wise, well, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, idols, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature instead of the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This was the mistake that Israel was making at this time. They were forgetting God, and they were trying to replace him with something else. But you know what? Sometimes there just is no replacement. Okay? Just ask my wife. Store brand peanut butter is not the same as national brand peanut butter. She will be quick to tell me that if I try and give her store brand peanut butter. She doesn't like it. She likes the good stuff. She can tell the difference. You may not be that picky about peanut butter, but let me tell you, there is no substitute for God. There is no other religion or other deity or other philosophy you can follow that will bring you joy and peace. There is only darkness apart from God. That is what the spiritual battle in our world is all about. If we turn away from God, we've lost. End of story. The only fix is to turn back to God. He is the only fix no matter what nation or time we live in. We are either walking with God or we are rebelling against God. And the consequences are dire and very important. And this progression, and we notice as Paul explained it in Romans chapter 1, that one thing that happens as we turn from God is that there is hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure, becomes the attitude of the day. And as it goes further and further into depravity, what do we see? I'm going to go a little further in Romans chapter 1, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That's what's taken over in this nation. So we see here that homosexuality and the acceptance of such practice is simply a sign of a society that has gone very far from God. And it's because they are disobedient to God that such a nation should be very concerned. It's and it's been said before, hasn't it, that if God doesn't judge America, Perhaps he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. <laughs> and you wonder, now that's something that maybe Billy Graham or his wife said many years ago. And boy, have we gone further in the direction of sexual depravity since that statement was made. But think of all the things that have happened that you've seen in your lifetime. 
right? From proliferation of pornography to ex people uh, becoming socially acceptable for a couple that's not married to live together, which is absolutely against the biblical uh, ethics, to the, the, not just the embrace, but the pushing to where people get canceled if they dare speak out against sexual sin. And it's gone even further today with the whole transgender madness, this, this thought that a man could be a, a girl or a girl could become a man, and having to accept people who are clearly mentally ill as if, as if they can just be whatever they want. But it's because we are now worshiping the creation, and as a creation, I should be able to be anything I want, right? And you should just be fine with that, because we are in a society that, at least part of our society, has forgotten God and no longer has any moral standards to live by. And this is what you get. You get spiritual darkness. You get moral chaos. You get no standards. It's even getting into the churches. It is. Corruption corrupts. Uh, Corruption corrupts, and we are in a corrupt society. Is, uh, we are in battle. In the Methodist, because some of them are taking the uh, same-sex couples and uh, all that come into their church as members, you know. So every congregation yeah. of every denomination has to make a decision. Are we going to go with what God's commanded, or are we going to go along with what the world is clamoring for? And that's simply the decision we have to make. So do we want to be faithful to God as, as a congregation? Do we want to be faithful to God as a community? Do we want to be faithful to God as a nation? That's the choice we have to make. But the fact is, this the issues are often the sideshow. Because if we make a decision that we're going to obey God, then it's very clear on what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. We're not going to lie, steal, cheat our spouses or do some of these uh, deviant behaviors because God said don't do that. It's as simple as that. So the real issue is are we going to obey God? But understand there is a progression. And as that progression, as a society turns further and further away from God, we're going to see more extreme behaviors that are exceedingly sinful, as Paul warned us about, and has been the pattern throughout all of human history. In fact, there is a historian. He's not even a professing Christian. His name is J.D. Unwin. An amazing name, if you think about the topic we're on. See, it sounds like the opposite of winning. His last name really is Unwin. He did research on all the great societies all the great civilizations in the world, and he looked to see what were the indicators that civilization was going to fall. And he found that the best sign, the best indicator that a culture was flourishing was if it had two characteristics. Number one, prenuptial chastity was expected. You expected people to wait until they were married to have sex. That was a sign of a flourishing culture. And the second thing was absolute monogamy, that you were only supposed to have sex with your husband or wife. If those two things were prevalent in a society's values, those are the ones that flourished. Those are the ones that we study about that were great 
that were great civilizations, that were great in literature, they were great in terms of expanding their nation and conquering and, and colonizing or whatever. Those were the biggest signs of a flourishing culture that had an impact on the world. And then the biggest, one of the biggest signs that a civilization was collapsing was when it got to a point where anything goes. If a society was marked by total sexual freedom, people could do anything they wanted and it was accepted. That was a signal. And in all the cases that he studied, that culture collapsed within three generations. Within three generations, that country would no longer be anything as powerful, anything as influential as it used to be. That was a sure sign that a culture was in collapse. Now, this historian is not taking God's judgment into account, but I'll tell you, that's exactly what it is. When a nation falls into, I'm going to do whatever I want, and I'm not going to listen to what the Bible says, that civilization has begun to end. And we often wonder why we don't see America in the book of Revelation. Well, maybe that's why. Maybe we won't really be here in 100 years. Maybe it'll be some other country ruling over the state of Georgia, the state with all the states that we know and love today. Who knows what will happen? But I tell you this, it won't be good if we don't turn back to God and decide that we're going to follow him and agree with his word instead of arguing with him and doing our own thing. So that was the thing. Israel was in this point. They had the commands of Moses, they, but they were worshiping idols anyway. And that was just one example of the things they were doing that were contrary to what they had been told to do. They were sitting in an inevitable darkness. Because when you turn from God, darkness is inevitable. It will always be the result. No matter who you are and when you live, if you turn from God, darkness is coming. And that is where they were. These were dark times. And that is why Jeremiah had a lot of crying to do. Because he knew there was a solution if they turned back to God. But he also knew that things would not go well if they persisted in rebellion. So that is where they are. When a people reject God, they inevitably spiral into folly, self-worship, and depravity. So that is where we are in Jeremiah chapter 2. Now let's move on to verse 7 and 8. So Dr. McGraw was not wrong. He's not wrong. But you... You choose the behavior, you choose the consequences. The consequences follow the behavior. That is correct. So here we are in verse 7. God again speaking to Israel. I brought you to a fertile land to eat its fruit and bounty. But after you entered, you defiled my land. You made my inheritance detestable. The priest quit asking, where is the Lord? The experts in the law no longer knew me. And the rulers rebelled against me, the prophets prophesied by Baal, and followed useless idols. So as God continues to question, it's like, what happened here? Again, they stopped seeking God. What's noted here, first of all, you see, again, God making reference to the promised land. I gave you this land. I was faithful to lead you here. I took care of you. I gave you prosperity, especially in the days of David. You guys ruled like the whole the whole world. 
you ruled almost, I mean, you're a nation, you ruled almost as much as the Persians and the Romans, it wasn't quite that big, but you ruled all of the Near East, uh, you know, the Middle East there, and I brought you a fertile land, right, there's a land of milk and honey, right, fruit and valley indeed, they had a wonderful, wonderful thing, but what happened? They defiled the land by disobedience, and that is what God has issued, because your, your perversion your disobedience has defiled the land. And for that reason, I'm going to kick you out. And one important thing to reference back, I don't have time to talk about everything in the Old Testament today. But I will say, do you remember that God kicked the Canaanites out of the land because of their detestable practices? And he warned them that if, we're going to see in a minute, he warned them, if you do that, I'm going to kick you out too. Now, in verse 8, I'm going to say very quickly, notice the leaders had failed the nation of Judah. The priests, the priests were supposed to lead the people to God, and they weren't even seeking God themselves. The experts in the law, they should have known the commands, but they're ignorant. The ones who are supposed to know something didn't. The rulers who were supposed to lead the people in a godly way were themselves rebelling against God. So they weren't. The governors, the, the kings were not ruling correctly. And then the, the prophets, they're supposed to share God's word, and they're prophesying what Baal has to say, and they're leading the people in Israel. So there's a total breakdown in leadership at every level. They are headed in the wrong direction, away from God in disobedience and rebellion. And that was an awful thing to see. Incompetent leaders who turn from God defile and ruin the blessings of God's people. I think that's still true today. We have to avoid the mistakes of the past. Here's that reference. I promise you this reference um, out of Leviticus 18. And for the sake of time, this is where he says, Don't make yourself unclean by any of these things, for by all these things the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. Obviously, we're jumping in the middle of the chapter. God had a lot of rules in the book of Leviticus, right? It's really fun reading, really exciting, action-packed. Not so much. But but God did give them important rules for how they were supposed to live. And he said, look, you are not going to live like the people before you. And notice what it says in verse 28. Well, he says, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. The imagery God says here is those people misbehaved, and I had the land basically throw up like you ate something bad, like you had sour milk or something, and I had the land expel those people because of their bad behavior. And if you turn into sour milk, I'm going to throw you out too. And this kind of really grotesque imagery is the land's going to throw you up. It's not going to be pretty. It's going to expel you from the land too, just like it expelled the Canaanites you conquered a couple hundred years ago. That was the warning God gave them. This is Leviticus. This is still Moses' writing. This was the warning they had from the very beginning. But if we forget about God and we don't study his word and we forget about the warnings and promises of Scripture, we're going to follow the same trap. So that was the concern. This is where the people are in Jeremiah's day. They have forgotten God and they're about to be expelled, sent into exile from the land because of their own sins. Because they have inept leaders, 
They're facing an inept defilement. They've blown it, basically. They, they have this chance, they have the promised land, and they have totally messed up. They've gone the wrong direction, and they're now guilty of, of sins equal to or maybe even worse than the pagans that God kicked out of the promised land to give it to them. And they're about to lose the promised land because they've defiled it. Because instead of following God, they have been totally inept and turned away from him and forgotten all the rules God gave them. So that takes us to verse 9 through 13. And we're going to take a quick treatment of those verses anyway. But let's take a look at them. Here's where the court setting I mentioned earlier comes in. Therefore, I will bring a case against you again. This is the Lord's declaration. Remember, that phrase happens over and over again in Jeremiah. I will bring a case against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and take a look. Send someone to Kedar and consider carefully. See if, see if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever exchanged its gods? But they were not gods. Yet my people have exchanged their glory for useless idols. Be appalled at this, heavens. Be shocked and utterly desolated. This is the Lord's declaration. For my people have committed a double evil. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. Obviously, we could talk at length about just verse 13. But this double sin, the fact is there is no excuse for abandoning the true and living God who provides us life and satisfaction. Like, what good reason is there to turn from him? Again, he was never at fault in this relationship. Why did they do that? Even the pagans had never given up their God for some better God. It's not like a sports league where, hey, let's make a trade. We like your guy better. Can we have your, your you know, shooting guard? And we'll send you our, you know, center who we, we don't like him anyway. But the fact is, they weren't trading up. They weren't trying to get a better job. There is no better God than God. Even the pagan nations who had false gods did make trades. And, oh, you know what? We're going to just worship a different God next year. Israel had turned their back on God for these inferior false gods. And again, it was inexplicable. Why did they even do it? But in turning from that, they had turned from the only source of life and satisfaction. And what do they experience now? An empty life, and they have only themselves to blame. Last references of the day, Jeremiah 17, 13. It is a scripture that we're not going to have in one of our studies, so I wanted to pull that out. Similar thing, Jeremiah is saying again, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. There's only one source of living water, folks. It's the Lord. And those who reject the Lord, it's no wonder that they're thirsty. It's no wonder that they're seeking satisfaction because they've turned away from the only source. And a quick reminder, Amos chapter 8, verse 11, that we studied about a year ago, two years ago, it's been a little while, so we studied the minor prophets. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. That is the most grave famine you could ever have. And when we're living in a culture where you get flack for sharing the truth of Scripture, you know we're in a tough place. 
But those are the only words we can share that give life with the words of God. So we have to keep sharing them. Unless we turn back from God, there is no hope. There's an inexcusable dryness in the land. When you turn away from God, you will find drought. You will find desert. You will find darkness. You will find defilement if you depart from God. What's the solution? Turn back to God in repentance and be devoted to him again. I hope that our country will do that. As we're going to see, Jeremiah's Judah does not choose to do that. But he warns them and they have every opportunity until they cross the line, the final line. It's a sad thing. Next week, we will be in Jeremiah chapter 7, so you might want to read through chapters 3 through 6. if We won't be covering them specifically, because we'll start to have to skip around, because Jeremiah, like someone you might know, talks a lot. We don't have time for all of it. But I hope that you remember what's the source of our joy. What's the source? Who's the living water? Wasn't it Jesus, as he said in John chapter 7, as we talked about recently? So let's walk with him. He is the only hope for us, our family, and our country, and our community. Let's pray. Lord, you are faithful. You are the good shepherd. Nothing good comes from turning away from you. Help us to share that simple message that our hope is in you. You alone can satisfy us. You alone will lead us to still waters. May we delight and worship you. May we remember that all of our blessings came from you. May we, with full devotion, seek to serve you and obey you. That's the only way things are going to turn out well. It's so important that we set our hearts on you and follow you as best we can. Yes, we may stumble, and you'll forgive us. But we can't drift into rebellion. We can't turn away from you and find any kind of happiness. That's only going to bring darkness. So, Lord, we need you to send revival. We need you to change hearts. Start with us. And let us truly get back to loving you and following you with our whole heart that you've asked us to. You've never let us down. So let's get back to being obedient servants regardless of the flack that we may get for it, because you are the only hope our nation will ever have. So let us follow and worship you today, trusting you with the results. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Thank you.